Well, let me welcome you back to the room. We're going to start um, the sermon portion of our worship service. And so if you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. We started a series in Proverbs uh, about a month ago. Uh, my hope was to get into Galatians, and uh, I wanted to jump into that, but uh, I didn't want to miss the rotating crowd that kind of happens in the summer. And so we put off uh, Galatians until um, after uh, Labor Day, and, uh, and we'll jump into that as we enter the fall. Uh, but until then, we're going to work through Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 this summer, and then next summer we'll pick up in chapters uh, 10, and it may take a couple of years, but we'll work through the book of Proverbs in that way. And so this is the fifth sermon in our series. If you'd like to follow up and catch up, uh, the other sermons are already online, uh, the first four uh, sermons in Proverbs. Today we're in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let's read the text together. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for its timeless relevance. Truth that is new and newly discovered is not true. Truth that has endured and was uh, relevant thousands and thousands of years ago that is still truth today is relevant to our lives and it's enduring. And so we acknowledge your word. We acknowledge that you speak to your children and that you speak to those through your word primarily. We ask that you would take your word and use it for your glory and for your majesty to shape us and to form us, to convict us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to sanctify us and make us more and more like Jesus. Take this word, help us to understand it, and to put it into practice so that we can be like the wise man who built his house on rock through application and not the uh, foolish person who builds a house on sand by hearing the word and then immediately forgetting what it said. So we give this time to you and we ask you to use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Uh, well, Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, it has a, a natural uh, bracket, uh, a self-contained unit. starts with my son. It's the third paternal address. The father, uh, Solomon, addressing the son. And, uh, and if you go back through Proverbs, you can see section by section by section. It'll be a separate teaching. My son and, and my son. And those are the kinds of ways in which we can tell the units of thought. This one, starting in verse 1, my son, don't forget my teaching. And then skip down to verse Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And then verse 12, a father, the son in whom he delights. Those two brackets form an inclusio, son here, son there. And so everything in between forms a a, a cogent unit of thought. And it's my goal to help you understand what verses 1 through 12 describe so that you can make application to your life. So before we jump back into the text and work through it verse by verse, let me just kind of engage your mind a little bit. Um, I want to teach you about this text, what I've learned over the past few weeks. Um, Two things that you need to know before we get back into the text. Number one, you need to know about Hebrew poetic structure. And then you need to have a knowledge of biblical covenants to help you kind of get the full grasp of this. So you might be thinking, um, can I take a nap now or should I wait for a few minutes? Let me kind of help you. Don't doze off yet, all right? Poetry and covenant language um, doesn't sound so exciting right now. And just to be honest with you, it's not very exciting, all right? Um, but while you're, um, while you're fresh and you're still listening, uh, let's, let's get this in here so that you have a better understanding. It's important. Um, it's extremely useful in helping us understand the text. So let me just um, help you understand what's happening here. Hebrew poetry is the first thing you need to know about this. In this passage... You can see six pairs of verses. One and two go together. Three and four go together. Five and six go together. Seven and eight go together. Eight and nine and uh, eight, nine and ten and eleven and twelve. Six pairs, um, and they form uh, a parallelism. Uh, it's a poetic device called parallelism. We should view verses one through twelve as a single unit broken up with six pairs of specific instruction. Why do you need to know about Hebrew poetry? (laughs) Why does this even matter? Who cares if it's a poem or if it's not? Let me help you understand why. About a third of the Old Testament is the genre of poetry. And if you don't understand how to interpret poetry, then you might misunderstand key portions of the entire Old Testament. A third of it, you might misinterpret it. Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Lamentations, they're all poetic. Most of Job, Ecclesiastes are poetic prose narratives. There are uh, prose narratives in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges uh, contain substantial poetic sections. The prophets, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, have an oracular prose to them. So if you don't understand poetry in the Old Testament, you might be missing the fullest meaning of what it means uh, of how to read your Old Testament. Uh, For example... A key feature in English poetry is rhyming, right? We like rhymes, we like meter, we like it to kind of flow. And so oftentimes um, you will find somebody writing just to make a rhyme. And so in order to make a rhyme, they may um, 
they, you may miss the real content just to make words rhyme. Yesterday, I was riding around, and the Doors song, Riders on the Storm, came on. I kind of like that song. I mean, it's, I don't know the content of it very much, but it's like a seven-minute song. And I, so I listened to it, and, and as I was thinking about these things, he's saying, uh, Woman, you got to love your man. Take him by the hand. Make him understand. All the world depends on this. And I thought, well, that doesn't make a lick of sense at all. What does that even mean? But it rhymes. And so we like rhyme. And so sometimes songs don't rhyme. Sometimes artists will write something just for a poetic effect, and it has little meaning or clarity at all. Uh, an artist like Bon Iver, where it's just kind of gibberish set to a song, uh, and yet it, 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 it's catchy and it's helpful and we relate to it, but you don't go there to find precise theological meaning or clarity. Uh, you definitely do that with Bon Iver, uh, or The Doors for that matter as well. Some artists write just for rhyme and meter, and they lose all sense of meaning or clarity. Other people write for clarity, and the result is that it can be kind of clunky. It doesn't really come off the tongue like very well, but it's precise. Listen, I say all this as an aside to tell you, that's why songs are so limited in their ability to articulate and offer precision in doctrine, precision in theology, or just precision in life. And so a side point here is that you should not develop your theology from art or music. All right? You shouldn't just take a sound bite of information and form a full-blown doctrine or theology from that. You shouldn't get your theology from Facebook or from Twitter or Instagram. You should go to books and you should go to precise language of people who have spelled it out and have labored over exact language so that they can be as clear as possible. Poetry doesn't write for clarity. It's often written for the sake of um, memorability. So it's thoughtful and helpful. Two, don't forget something, but keep something. Length of days and years of life. You see the, the two uh, thoughts side by side, one offering clarity to the other. Don't forget, but keep. Length of days and years of life. That's called parallelism. Verses three through four. Let not forsake, bind them and write them. So let it not for, um, let your heart not forsake steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, bind it around your neck. This is the same thought, just repeated twice. Don't let it leave you, but bind it to you. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Trust, but don't lean. Same idea, clarified in a second passage, a second word. Verses 7 through 8. Don't be wise in your own eyes, uh, but believe and repent. It's the same idea uh, shared twice. Verses 9 through 10. Wealth and first fruits, barns and vats. And we're going to get into that in a minute. Verses 11 through 12. Don't despise or be weary. He loves and delights. All right, so there are parallelism states one thing and then it restates it in just a different way. That's a Hebrew poetic feature. It's the dominant feature where in English poetry, the dominant feature is rhyme and meter. Uh, in Hebrew poetry, it's parallelism. All right, file that away somewhere. All right, you're still awake, right? Everybody's still awake? All right, good, 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 good. So here's the bottom line when it comes to poetic understanding. You don't force poetry for precise wooden literal meaning, 
You kind of just get a feel for it, all right? You just get a gist of what it's trying to say. Uh, if you look at verses 9 through 10, for example, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Well, if you tried to make that literal, how many of you have a vat? Anybody have an overflowing vat? That sounds like a personal homeowner policy issue. If you have overflowing vats, well, at what temperature do you keep your vat? How, how long are the contents good in your vat, right? If you try to make this too literal, what even is a vat, right? What are, what is this, how big is a vat? I don't have a vat. Do you have a vat? Well, if you try to make it so literal that it has to mean barns and vats, then 99.9% of, there may be one person in here who has a vat. I know some of you have a barn, but, but if you try to make it, if you force Hebrew poetry into a wooden literal meaning, you kind of lose sight of it. So what if understanding Hebrew poetry and applying it correctly meant that your barn and your vat could also mean your bank account or your heavenly rewards? That makes better sense, right? Your, your bank account can be overflowing if you're generous. Your uh, heavenly um, rewards account could be overflowing. Yeah, that's what it means and how we interpret Hebrew poetry. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? All right, moving on. The second thing you need to kind of grasp when you're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 is covenant language. Covenant language. Proverbs 3, 1 through 12 is about being in a faithful covenant relationship with wisdom. Covenant language. What's covenant language? Covenants in the Bible form the backbone of the biblical story. You can almost divide Scripture into various covenants. Just a little while ago, we read Jesus saying to his apostles, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's introducing a covenant. You might not have known this, but, but your Bible is divided into two parts. And at the very beginning of, of, um, of each of my two parts, let's see if I can hold this up without losing everything. Um, it says the Old Testament some of yours says the Old Covenant. And in the beginning of Matthew, where it's the New Testament or the New Covenant, the Bible is divided into covenants. We have an Adamic covenant where God agrees with Adam uh, and agrees in their kind of conditions on their promises on how to walk together. We have a Noahic covenant where God promises Noah, I'll never again destroy the earth with water. And the sign of that covenant is... A rainbow, that's right. Uh, covenants are the backbone of the biblical story, and they can be defined as follows. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. It's like a marriage. I did a marriage earlier this summer, a wedding earlier this summer, and they said their I do's, and he said their I do's, and they, they made these public promises that we're going to walk in such a way. That's a lot like what a covenant is. So about these covenants, uh, you need to understand that our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He relates to creation through these structured promises of partnership. And you can find covenants all throughout Scripture um, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham. The offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sand on the seashore. Um, that's a covenant that He makes with them. He actually cuts the covenant in that 
kind of weird passage where he cuts animals in half and they walk through and there's a smoking fire pot and the presence of God comes through. Do you remember that passage? That's what's called cutting a covenant. Um, There is a Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai. There's a Davidic covenant with King David. Someone from your line will sit on the throne forever. Right? Who's Who's the promised one from the Davidic covenant that sits on the throne forever? That's right. That's the right answer. Nine times out of ten, even if it's not the right answer, it's almost always Jesus right. But this time it actually is the right answer. So good job, uh, Hogan's. Um, it is Jesus that is the, uh, the promise of the Davidic covenant, the one who will sit on the throne forever. So why do we need to know that for this? Well, this is a covenant outline using covenant language in chapter 3, 1 through 12. A covenant just says... Um, you live a certain way and there are promises and blessings that result. So the covenant with wisdom from Solomon to his son, it's an agreement and you see the agreements here. Don't forget my teaching. What's the promise for that? Length of days, years of life, and peace. Verse 3, don't let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. What's the blessing from that? Verse 4, so you will find favor and good success. Now look, if you want to trace this, every odd-numbered verse is your covenant responsibility to wisdom. Every even-numbered verse is the benefit, the blessing, or the promise from that. Isn't that an easy way to understand this? There's a a if-then clause. If you do this, then you will get that. So that's kind of how we want to understand this. All right, let's get back into the text with those two things out of the way. Chapter 3, verse 1, My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So the main command is don't forget and keep. And the benefit is length of days, years of life, and years of peace. Do you like benefits? Are you motivated by rewards? Do you think, uh, if only I had something to shoot for? A few weeks ago, Julie and I went hiking at Mount Rainier, and and we took all the easiest paths available. (laughs) On the trail map, it was like, this is green and flat and like a mile or a tenth of a mile or an eighth of a mile. or It was like super short distances, but one day... Uh, we just did not get the view of Rainier that we wanted. And so we, we knew we couldn't just park and look and see it. We had to do some work for it. So we found this particular hike, and it said strenuous. Uh, and we were like, oh, all right. Uh, so we, we went up a little ways, very steep, and then we got to a view, and we were like, oh, this is great. We can see a great view. But if, we, if you look a little further, there's an even better view. Let's go there. And we just kept going to the next higher view, and the next higher view, and the next higher view, until we could see the blue in the glacier. And we could see uh, the people who are seriously hikers, like in a line way up there with backpacks and tents and snowboards and skis. And, and every little goal ever was a reward in itself. We're, we're motivated that way, right? We, we see a reward and it helps us keep our covenant promises. That's, that's the promise that he's giving them here. Length of days, you will live a long time. He says years of life is a benefit for keeping the teaching, keeping the commandments. Listen, life is more than just existence, right? You've known people who are on a ventilator and their organs are moving and the blood is pumping 
But that's just an existence. That's not what you would call life. You experience real life, an abundant life, whenever you're rightly connected to the Creator. Jesus promises life and the abundance of life. And the benefit for keeping His Word is that you have years of life and years of peace. How would you like to have your life defined by peace? Uh, Years of life and peace, contrast that with um, years of struggle, years of angst, years of anxiety, years of worry, years of fighting, years of labor or toil or difficulty. The promise in Scripture here is that if you don't forget the teaching, but keep the commandments, there will be length of days, years of life, years of peace. They will add to you. Let's look at the next one. Verses 3-4. through Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So that's the covenant responsibility for us. If we want to have a covenant with wisdom, if we want to walk in wisdom, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Do you remember Exodus 34? When Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, hey, there's a place near me where you can stand and I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you and I'll walk by you and, uh, and you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live, but, but I'll let you see my glory from, uh, from behind and the train of my robe. And he does this and you see this wonderful thing and the Lord says and walks in front of him, the Lord, the Lord, faithful and steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he says, uh, he, who he is himself. This is the Hebrew word hesed and it means steadfast love and loyal affection, and it's one of God's trademarks. He's saying, don't just know the word, verses 1 through 2, but let it so impact you that everyone who knows you knows you as a hesed, someone who loves steadfastly and loyally and faithfully. Let that be a part of your character. Now, years ago, I read about a pastor in a dangerous neighborhood in Chicago. He went out of his way to love the sick and the poor and those who were uh, uh, down in life. And he was um, always in the streets, always ministering to people, always giving to people. And he was um, fiercely loyal and protected of those he loved. And it was said about this pastor of how well he loved people. But it's also said about him Um, it was said about him that he loved people well, but if you crossed him or if you hurt him or if you hurt anyone else that he loved, at that point you would feel the full weight of his love. They said about him that nobody loved enemies better than he did in those neighborhoods. What does that mean? It means he had a reputation for steadfast love and faithfulness. It was written on the tablet of his heart. It was wrapped around his neck. It was imprinted on his character. He loved well. How well do you love? Not just people that love you, right? Jesus said, what what credit is it to you if you just love people who love you? Everybody does that. That's not a mark of godliness. The mark of Christ's likeness is how well you love your enemies, right? Oh, Gibson, why did you say that? I can think of 10 people that I just don't actually love very well. And, and so why do, you, why do you say that to me? 
It's a hard mark of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, you can't do it without the Holy Spirit, right? You can't love your enemies. You can't love people who hate you and persecute you without the Holy Spirit filling your heart with love. In order for us to do that, it's got to be a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's the one who reminds you of all truth. He's your counselor. He's your helper. All right, let's move on to verses 5 and 6. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's our obligation. And then the promise is, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. So to trust and acknowledge is our part and His promise if we do that or wisdom's promise is a straight path. Um, we have to walk by faith, not necessarily by sight, right? That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 6-7 through says. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. This is so counterintuitive to us. We walk by what we see, and we reason by what we know, and what we can observe, and what we can see, touch, taste, feel, smell, like our senses. And so we tend to put our faith in things that are tangible and there. But it's difficult to walk by faith and not by sight. So let me kind of help you understand what it means to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not to lean on your own understanding. Tim Keller helps us understand that by saying it this way, you can believe in God, yet still trust in something else for your real significance and happiness. You make that distinction, right? Everybody's good with that. You can believe in something and trust in something else. You can believe in something and trust in something else. James 1, 19-20, the famous verses, um, even the demons believe and they shudder. That is that that... It's okay to acknowledge God in your mind and not trust in Him. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people have a head knowledge of who God is and they believe Him, but it's different than trusting in Him. Keller goes on to say, uh, sometimes we hide how we do this from ourselves. That is how we believe something but not trust something. And it's only when something goes wrong with, say, your career or your family that you realize it's much more important to you than even the Lord Himself. What does this have to do with wisdom, Keller says? Everything. Because there are excessive emotions surrounding the things that make the functional trust of your heart. You hear that? If you functionally trust something, even though you say you believe in God, that head knowledge, when the rubber hits the road, when, the, when it's time for real life, you say, I, I believe in God, but I'm trusting in my own ability to make money or my own ability to have right relationships. And he says, the way you can tell this, um, the functional trust of your heart, whether it's your career, your wealth, your relationship with a spouse or someone else, your children, some romantic relationship, he says, the way you know that is that you will be inordinately shaken anxious, angry, or even despondent if anything threatens what is the functional trust of your heart. Does that make sense? You guard what you trust. You protect it with all you have. And he's saying to take that faith and trust and belief and focus it on the Lord himself and on nothing else. It's the definition of idolatry. And our hearts are idol factories. They constantly spit out and produce something else that we want to trust in. Right? 
It's constantly causing our faith in the Lord to swerve. He says there will be excessive emotions surrounding the things that you make the functional trust of your heart. What they do to you is they cloud your judgment. They distort your vision of yourself and the world. Idolatries of the heart lead to foolishness in life. The ultimate remedy for idolatry is the gospel. We don't need to justify ourselves by works, by success, by romance, by achievement. If we are freely justified by faith in Jesus. So what is the best candidate in your life? What would you point to that is the idol of your heart? That has now stolen your trust in God. That's three, five through six. Let's look at verses seven through eight. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. That's our covenant responsibility. Fear the Lord, turn away. And then the benefit is it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I think the point of this line of poetry is don't think so highly of yourself. Watch out for your ego. Ego is a funny thing that says, I deserve more. I should have better. My position in life should be this. It's it's an overinflated sense of self-worth and value to yourself and value to your family and value to your community. And, and it just says, look at me. Look at what I've done and look at what I contribute and look at what I bring to the table. And, and everybody would be blessed and benefited if, if I were a part of their life. It's just an overinflated sense of self-worth and value um, without diminishing what God places as a value on you. You're a valuable person worth the, the, the death of Jesus but an overinflated view of that says uh, that God chose you because you were worth it, right? Because you were, uh, he wanted you on his team in some kind of heavenly uh, dodgeball tournament, right? You're the first guy chosen. I want, I want him because of his gifts or I want her because of how amazing she is. This is the heart of being wise in your own eyes. And the antidote is to fear the Lord and turn away from that evil. <clears throat> Verses 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Honor your Lord, the Lord with your wealth. It's the point of the poetry here is to be generous. <clears throat> to be generous. I recently read uh, a story. A farmer had a cow and it unexpectedly had two calves. And with this um, immediate blessing, the farmer went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, my farmer had two cows and I want you to know that when I sell these cows, the first one, I'm going to give all the proceeds to, to the church. And the pastor said, well, that's very generous of you. Now, two weeks later, the farmer informed the pastor, Pastor, unfortunately, the Lord's calf died and my calf survived, <clears throat> right? Proverbs 25, 14 says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man or woman who boasts of a gift that they never give, right? It's very easy to be generous in your mind and it's very difficult to be generous when it actually comes time. It's usually the Lord's calf that dies, right? It's usually the gift that we promised to God that just didn't make it, but I, uh, my, my calf survived. Um, earthly treasures, heavenly treasures, um, God gives, but it's, it's difficult to understand this because if you look closely at this passage, you might ask yourself, is this some kind of health and wealth, like prosperity gospel verse? 
It's God saying that if you're just generous, you're going to be overflowing with gifts. So yeah, I'll be generous so that God will give me more and more. And we can, we can fool ourselves into thinking generosity is a means to an end or that God is a means to an end of wealth and prosperity. So it, it asks us the question, begs the question here, is this a health and wealth passage? Is Solomon teaching his son that the only way to be rich is to be generous? Let me just say a couple things about that. Experientially, I can say that the godliest men and women, the wealthiest and godliest men and women I know are also the most generous. Uh, And most oftentimes, those people I know, you would never know that they're wealthy. One particular man I know had lived in the same sort of rancher that his family had first bought when they were newly married. And instead of buying a new house, he would incrementally, percentage by percentage, increase his tithe. Until the time I knew him, it was privately said about that man that he was giving 60% of his income away, being content in his small rancher, occasionally would build a room on for extra kids and extra children, still live there to this day. I haven't seen the guy in over 30 years. But his tithe would increase dramatically. Now, Just humanly speaking, who would God bless Somebody who's pursuing the Lord and is generous with their income. That's who he would bless. That's an experiential kind of anecdote. But the wealthiest, godliest people I know seem to have embraced the principle that God is the one who owns everything. And he's the one who provides the means for you to get wealthy in the first place. To have money or to not have money is in the hands of God, not yourself. At any moment, we all have to acknowledge that we could be afflicted in some way. And lose income. Lose the ability to have income. It's all in the hands of God anyway. Those who are godly and generous also seem to be disciplined and increasing in their willingness and ability to give. They don't get money and then decide to be generous. They're generous before they ever get money. (laughs) They give. That's why the the scripture gives us a percentage-based guide. Give a 10% back to the Lord. Uh, And in so doing, um, their increase is there. So what does this mean? Because we watched the insanity of God a week ago last night, and plenty of those guys that we watched in that movie didn't have wealth, and they they, they got prison in return for their faith. How does um, Proverbs reconcile those who don't get earthly treasure when they live godly lives? This requires some explanation because oftentimes your reward for godliness is persecution and difficulty and struggles in this life. So the way in which we can help reconcile that and give a view to that is that Jesus offers heavenly rewards. No one who offers a cold cup of water in my name will fail to receive their reward in heaven. Matthew 6, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. There is... Uh, some sort of a heavenly reconciling of what you do here and now that will impact you in the afterlife. Mark Dever says it this way, individual proverbs are always ultimately true. Why normally true now? There is an ultimate fulfillment of these proverbs. 
Let's move on to verses 11 through 12. He says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not be weary of his reproof. That's our responsibility. And then the benefit or the blessing or the promise is the Lord reproves those whom he loves like a father, the son in whom he delights. He's talking about discipline. He's talking about correction. He's talking about being rebuked. We're supposed to receive that as love. And you might say with kind of an eyebrow up, what? Because we often react to discipline as a sign of anger or a sign of God's judgment or a sign of his displeasure with us, don't we? Something bad happens in your life. Uh, God uses a difficult circumstance to, to get your attention. And you think, why can't I just walk in peace and not have this discipline in my life? What is this all about? I often have to tell my children when I discipline them and they react, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what I, I'm, what, I, I won't do it again or something like that. I say, listen, I'm not angry at you. Sometimes I even say, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm just correcting you. Other times I do say, that was wrong, but let's learn from it and fix it. I tell them, this is the best place in the world for you to make mistakes because no one's going to love you more. No one's more committed to you. You have the freedom to make mistakes in this house. But when you do, because I love you, I'm going to correct you. And I correct my children, not perfectly, for sure. But discipline is correction, and correction is done out of love. What does it say? He corrects the one in whom he delights. He delights in you if he's disciplining you. Notice it doesn't say he, he disciplines the ones that he tolerates. Ugh. He disciplines the one that he rolls his eyes at and has to correct yet again. No. He doesn't roll his eyes at you. He doesn't put up with you. He doesn't tolerate you. If he's disciplining you, it's because he delights in you. It's because he loves you. This passage is quoted. Uh, it's not corroded. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 13, where it says, um, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quoted here, My son, do not regard, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like sons and daughters. What son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which you've all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. See what discipline does? It, it causes you to walk in holiness. That means God allows rebukes, corrections, painful circumstances. Uh, Galatians 6 uh, five, six through eight. I, I, I can't remember what it says there, but it says, um, God is not mocked. 
Do not be deceived. God won't be mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to your flesh, then from the flesh you will reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, then from the Spirit you reap life. That means sometimes sin has a built-in consequence and God just lets you experience the built-in consequences for that because he won't be mocked. And that's a form of his discipline. And he disciplines those in whom he delights. A sign of God's love for you is oftentimes the sign that you're going through difficulty. And he's using it to shape you, and he's using it to, to make you more in his image, and he's doing it to correct you. I'll never forget, um, in my uh, 20s, I taught kayaking at a summer camp. And I got kind of good at it. We would go off these little waterfalls, and we would go nose down and go under, and we could, I could do these barrel roll kind of things, and, and I could teach this to all these 15-year-old kids. And, and so at the end of that summer, I said, I'm just going to take up kayaking. I'm going to find a dagger, and I'm going to find these you know, kind of rapids, and I'm gonna, that's going to be my new thing. I was like 25 years old, and so I started looking for kayaks online, and I started looking at stores, and, and there was like a little bit of hesitation um, in my spirit about pursuing this as a hobby. I didn't know why, but, but I felt like the Lord was saying, no, 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 don't, this is a distraction. Don't go down this rabbit hole. Anybody else chase squirrels? Sometimes you just kind of find a hobby and run, and that's what this was happening. And so for a period of like two years, I would kind of pursue, and then he would pull back, and I would, okay, 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 I won't go do it. But then finally, I kind of gave myself freedom to jump into it, and we were going to Florida, and we were going to kayak. I booked a trip for this whole group. We were going to kayak through these little portion of uh, the swamp with these, you know, not out alligator infested, but there were definitely alligators around there, and, and we had these big long things, and we were going to go through this little um, um, sort of wilderness where these uh, cypress trees grow out of the swampy area, and everyone, you know, was kind of humble brag, well, yeah, you know, I taught kayak, and uh, I used to kayak a little bit here and there, but I, in my mind, I was so proud and so anxious to show off what I could do, and as you know, in this group of 25 kayakers, not five minutes into this trip, I rolled my kayak and it filled with water. I was so humiliated, so embarrassed, so angry. I told the rest of them, just go on, I'll catch up. And I, I drug it through the water right over to this cypress stump, and I'm looking for alligators out of one eye, and all I have is an empty water bottle. I ruined my backpack and everything in it, and, and I one water bottle at a time. I'm emptying this kayak, trying to get it buoyant again. I'm just humiliated, and I'm red-faced and angry. And, and finally, after an hour... It's decent enough for me to get it, and I try to hurry out to the bay and catch up with the group. And once I got out there, I was so furious. I had one of those kind of prayer times. You ever have one of those prayer times where you're like, Jesus, why did you do this to me? And why? So angry. It was like praying through gritted teeth, fury, and embarrassed and humiliated. And and out in the middle of that bay, I'll never forget this passage, Hebrews 12, word for word coming to mind. As the father disciplines the son he loves, so I discipline you. And it was so sharp to my soul. It was so painful in my spirit, but I never felt more loved by God. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I never felt his affection more than I did in such an acute, painful snapping of a leg kind of an event for me. It, was, it hurt so bad. It wounded my ego and my pride and everything about me, but, but I never felt God's love anymore. That's what this says about discipline. Look again at verse 12. 
and 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The Lord reproves the one whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let's conclude the sermon this way. You might look at this list, and if you're not in Christ, you might say, I like the benefits. I like the even number verses. Years of life, years of peace, overflowing vats. I'm going to get a vat today. I'm going to go get a barn, and I like all that stuff. I'm, going to, I'm just going to grit my teeth, and I'm going to write this as a to-do list, a checklist. Gibson, I'm going to do all these things. Listen, this is not a moral to-do list. This is not behavior modification so you can get the blessings. You might think, so I just need to be generous and teachable and disciplined by God and submissive and and filling my mind with Scripture so that I get all these blessings. It's not that way. It's not that way. This passage points to the need for your salvation and regeneration. All throughout this, we see uh, shadows of Deuteronomy 4. Obey the commandments. Teach them. Put them into practice. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 17. This is how you are to live by the law. But listen, outward obedience to the law requires inward transformation, not behavior modification. This is not a to-do list that you add to the outside of your life. You have to be changed from within to do this. And what does that do for us? The law acts as a schoolmaster or a guardian or like a tutor. That's Galatians 3. Galatians 3 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive underneath the law. We were imprisoned by the law until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24 of Galatians 3. So then the law was our teacher our guardian, our tutor, our schoolmaster, until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. So what does that mean? How does the law tutor us? How does a covenant tutor us? This is what it does for you. The law shows you that you can't keep the law, right? Have you ever tried to keep Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments? You should have no other gods before me. Fail, right? We put other things higher than God all the time. You shall not make an idol, Our hearts are idol factories. You shall honor your father and mother. How many of you to this day perfectly have honored your parents? You shall shall keep the Sabbath day holy. You shouldn't work on Saturdays. Uh, Do not um, tell a lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Listen, we break all those commandments all the time. And what does that do for us? It puts us in a position of humility that says, I can't be good enough for God. I can't earn my salvation. The law is a teacher, a guardian, a tutor that came to show us our need for Jesus, the ultimate covenant keeper. The law shows us that we can't keep it. We need a covenant keeper. The law came to show us that we can't keep the law. We need the ultimate law keeper. That we have no righteousness of our own, that we need someone else's righteousness to be imputed to us or given to us. And that causes us not to look at ourselves for salvation, but to look to Christ, Jesus in his perfection. He became the great law keeper, the perfect covenant keeper, so that by faith in Jesus Christ, you may receive the righteousness of Christ. And when you do that, you see the love of God bursting out of your soul because by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. 
It's for his glory, not so you can pat yourself on the back and say, look how good I am. So you can look and say, look how good he is. That makes us worthy to worship this morning. So Lord Jesus, we do exalt you. We do exalt you that you have not left salvation through us, by us, for us, for our glory alone, but that you have shown us through the law and through the covenants how inadequate and sinful we really are and how desperate we are for a Savior who has fulfilled the promises of Scripture for us so that as we hide ourselves in Him, it might be said of us, this one was born in Zion. This one was born of God born again of God by the Spirit of God. In humility, we acknowledge our sin before you and ask you to save us continually that we may walk by faith, not by sight. Would you make it so today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.